Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, Today I have a special guest. It's uh, Michael Schlisky. He's a professor of medicine and surgery at Yale University. Uh, He's a medical director. Uh, He deals with liver uh, issues, liver transplant, uh, transplant hepatology, etc. So we're going to talk about uh, issues related to the liver. So, Michael, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Richard. I look forward to talking with you. Yeah, so why, um, well, I guess a little bit of background on you. What, what got you interested in medicine and surgery and why the liver? Well, I'm actually an internal medicine by training, but my crossover in the surgical direction is through my interaction with my colleagues in the field of liver transplantation. I started as uh, someone who had done both uh, medical training and laboratory training and worked in the basic area of copper metabolism for a number of years and worked in cell models, animal models, and at the same time maintained uh, practice in gastroenterology and liver disease. And then the world of transplant evolved greatly and had moved from uh, our imagination to practical uh, application and then ultimately to successful application over the years with development of better technique as well as pharmacology to match that allowed us to gain much better outcomes for our patients. And it was just one more way of treating our patients. So for me, you know, medicine was always a, a wonderful calling, but to combine the science with the patient care really is always where I've kind of been at. What uh, conditions seem to affect the liver predominantly that you see? Well, there's a large number of things that can affect the liver, both acutely as well as uh, chronically over a long period of time. Everything from toxic injury, most commonly being alcohol, or if we're looking at acute liver injury, um, people do sometimes either unintentionally or intentionally ingest large amounts of acetaminophen or other medications may cause toxic injury to the liver. Then there's the infectious causes, which include many of the viral hepatitis and some other common uh, diseases, which also may affect the liver indirectly. And then we have a category of what we call autoimmune disease, where a number of the disorders are caused by dysregulation within the body that causes a reaction to our own cells, leading to injury and the liver is just one site and an area where this can occur. And my particular interest has always been in the area of metabolic liver disease, and in particular inherited disorders of of liver metabolism. Here it's a very interesting um, area to look at because these are rare disorders and they have to be plucked apart from the larger context of patients with many different uh, liver diseases. And They also have an opportunity, especially in the right setting, and if they're found timely, to effect a really good outcome for patients. So that's um, 
So there's a large many things that, that can cause liver problems. And uh, fortunately, as over the number of years I've been involved in care of liver patients, we've uh, found an ever-increasing ability to help our patients both by supportive measures with advancing medical care in general, including intensive care, as well as surgical techniques such as transplantation, interventional techniques that our radiologists may apply to prevent an actual operation but still effect changes in the circulation within the liver or to be able to biopsy and obtain tissue to help us with our diagnosis. And now as the future is coming, we're also being starting to look at some of the molecular applications, both in diagnostics, allowing us to help make a diagnosis for some of these rare disorders much easier, as well as the make the dream of gene therapy and cure of disease, which was once really truly just a dream, turn into a reality now. How much um, can any particular intervention rely on the regenerative ability of the liver? Does that help you, you know, as a doctor when someone has a liver pathology, knowing the liver may, may regenerate at least some, does that make it easier to treat? Well, we rely on that balance between injury and regeneration constantly in our care for liver patients. And in fact, we rely on it so much that we often don't see patients until later in their injury course because the liver will typically respond in a very favorable way in trying to repair that injury and regrow in response to uh, loss of cells or loss of its integrity. And so we, we can use that to our advantage uh, in certain instances, when there are tumors within the liver, we may be able to cut part of the liver out and know that the liver can regrow its capacity in, in terms of both size and functionality. And similarly, with transplantation, we can take advantage of that regenerative response by using what we call partial grafts so that someone can actually donate a piece of their healthy liver regrow their own liver to the full size, place that within an individual that needs a new organ, and that will regenerate to a full size in the recipient. And it's really a marvel of nature that the liver kind of knows how much it needs to grow. So if we put a larger size organ, say, into a child, that organ will then shrink and contract by loss of cells to an appropriate size if we put it into, say, an adult where it may be only a fraction of the normal size, it will grow back to a complete size. So we, we are very dependent both in normal treatment of our disease and trying to restore enough balance for that regenerative capacity, as well in, as I mentioned, these operative techniques, which take advantage of that regenerative capacity. Yeah, maybe a couple of words about um, either myths people have or, or how sensitive the liver is to, you mentioned acetaminophen, I guess if you have too much for too long a period, it can damage your liver. But what are the parameters there? Is it is your liver liver very sensitive to that, or is it pretty resilient to a long course of acetaminophen? So acetaminophen is actually very safe uh, in low dosages. So even patients with chronic liver disease, one of the safer treatments for, say, headache or fever would be to take up to two grams, which is, would be about four of the extra strength capsules of acetaminophen. However, when ingested in excess or if the liver has impairment, say somebody is ingesting alcohol simultaneously, then the amounts of acetaminophen that 
are needed to cause liver injury go down. And so the liver itself, the acetaminophen is not the toxic compound, but it's a metabolite of the acetaminophen that will accumulate and use up many of the various different protective um, compounds within the liver such that it ultimately will cause oxidative injury and then loss of, of cells within the liver. So it tends to be dose responsive so that the more you take, the more you have a chance of injury. But typically we don't see what we call acute liver failure. That is the drop out of the normal capacity of the liver to function unless people are taking up to 10 grams of the acetaminophen in a day, which usually happens by one of two means, either an intentional ingestion, as some people have used this as a mode of suicide, or as we call a therapeutic misadventure, where people are taking acetaminophen as part of other uh, compounds, where it may be part of a drug that contains acetaminophen, and then on top of that may unknowingly take more acetaminophen and exceed a recommended amount. And there the liver's capacity to fight the acetaminophen, its normal reducing capacity is diminished. If we recognize that quickly, we can treat that with compounds such as acetylcysteine, which restore the regenerative um, mode for this reducing capacity and detoxifies the toxic compound, which is the metabolite. Uh, and if not, however, then the liver does suffer damage. And then we take advantage of the regenerative capacity if we can support them long enough, or if too much of the liver is damaged, then the patient goes into a state of liver failure in which they can no longer support their body's functions uh, that the liver is normally performing, production of coagulation factors, detoxification of many compounds. And indeed, they're also at risk of developing uh, high levels of ammonia and injury to the brain during this period as well. So this is certainly something we wish to avoid. So the, the myth of acetaminophen being um, you know, toxic is only when it's ingested in high amount or in combination with other injurious agents. Otherwise, it's actually okay. quite safe. What about NSAIDs, you know, like Advil and ibuprofen? Do they have a bad effect on the liver or not really? Well, they do if taken in, in chronic use or large amount. Uh, the kidney is also very sensitive to the use of these non-steroidal drugs. Uh, the shame is they often have a much longer half-life of function, and many patients with uh, various different types of arthritis feel much better using them. However, safety for patients with liver disease is, is not great. It also has other issues in relation to injuring the gastric lining, uh, and when that happens, and especially in patients with chronic liver disease where they may already have a weakness to some of the resistance to bleeding, it can be uh, a significant problem. I've heard about uh, NAFLD, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as being uh, something that's newly defined and on the rise. Can you talk about that a bit? And how does that happen and what, what happens to the liver if you have it? Yeah, so fatty liver disease is now overtaking many other uh, previous disorders, such as hepatitis C, is becoming the more common enemy uh, for those of us who are trying to fight liver disease. It's thought to have increased in frequency with the increase of obesity and diabetes within our country and around the world in general. 
we know that a number of people who are insulin resistant uh, as they gain weight or in some cases uh, may even have this occur less commonly when, you know, unrelated to weight gain. And in these individuals, there is a development of fatty change within the liver. There then is what we call second hits or other changes that may occur from other um, oxidative injury, uh, some related to the fatty deposition within the liver, some related to other toxic events, um, maybe a viral injury or sometimes even excess iron accumulation. And you create this environment where you're then more sensitive to the oxidative change and then ultimately develop cell injury. And cell injury in the liver leads to scar within the liver and the advancement of scar ultimately to a state of what we call cirrhosis, where you have the regenerative change, but also associated with very advanced scar that extends in bands across the liver, and that causes hemodynamic consequence. And then ultimately, also, when you have enough of the liver tissue involved, both the microcirculatory changes that develop as well as the loss of functional mass can lead to liver failure as well. Uh, but it's a very common entity to have fatty liver, uh, and then it's uh, less common to go on to develop liver failure from it. But uh, certainly there are crossovers, and in terms of other injurious agents such as alcohol, there can also lead to fatty change early on. And then when you combine the two, then that's sort of a little bit like pouring gasoline on a fire and then you have an accelerated uh, development of injury and scarring in those individuals. Uh, there are a number of different methods to combat this. There are a number of different drug trials now, uh, some aimed at changing the uh, balance related to uh, what we call glycemic control, again, going back to the insulin axis. Some of them are more um, involved in trying to deflect some of the oxidative injury within the liver that leads to the secondary activation of the tissue that lays down the scar. And then others are, are uh, trying to remove other toxic agents from the liver as well that will then allow the uh, regeneration occur and hopefully slow down the scarring itself. Uh, it's an area of great intense research right now. Uh, the very simple part of approach to that has been the use of uh, attempts at weight loss for those who have gained more weight and have fatty liver associated with that. Just a change in 5 to 10% of overall body weight can change the whole glycemic index in individuals and then sometimes arrest this process quite dramatically. Uh, but as we know, weight loss is not an easy thing to, to achieve. And then certainly, even if it's achieved, to maintain it sometimes can be a great challenge. So here's where we again have the crossover into surgery and other advanced techniques uh, that are being uh, tried to aid. So you hear about things like bariatric surgery where they will do reduction in the size of the stomach or more advanced surgeries that intentionally create malabsorptive states so that calories are lost through the body and in some of these individuals, these surgeries can be life-saving. The process of 
um, liver injury that has occurred through the fatty change and oxidative injury can really reverse itself quite dramatically if it's caught in time. And some, whether it's due to, um, well, it, it's just a remarkable thing to see so that uh, you have to really approach these individuals as a whole. Now, the other important aspect of patients who may have this fatty liver disease is that it's not a unique effect on the liver. And there has to be sort of a multidisciplinary and a global look at these individuals. And you have to look at their cardiovascular risk as well. And a number of these people have accelerated development of atherosclerosis, higher risk for heart attack and stroke and other vascular disease that may lead to complications. So certainly we can't only look at the liver, we have to look at the impact on the individual as a whole and use the um, many different specialties, expertise to help, you know, keep this at bay. But right now, this is a very challenging area where we don't have a magic bullet uh, to fix for a lot of patients. And certainly with the epidemic of obesity and over uh, caloric intake, especially of high fructose containing product, you know, the United States is in uh, for a long, into this for a long haul now. What about um, if, if someone's, they don't really apparently have liver disease, but they uh, they get their blood work done and their liver panel doesn't look quote unquote normal. So I know. Liver panels or liver enzymes that we've seen that, that say, hmm, something's going on here. Yeah, so the liver in its early stages of injury um, there may not be any signs or symptoms, and the earliest findings, as you point out, may be just the abnormality seen on blood tests. And as the uh, advent of more frequent testing and, and more complete testing has taken place over the last half a century, um, you know, when these tests have become automated and, and part of our standard battery to look at things, we try to find these individuals at an early stage and understand what these abnormalities mean. There are certain patterns and there are changes in what we call some of the aminotransferases, which indicate that there is injury to liver cells. And then these contents of the liver cells then are spilled in the circulation and that's how we detect this into the blood test. And we can look at the pattern to detect whether or not this is unique to the primary liver cell or the hepatocyte, or whether some of the cells that are involved in the drainage aspect and other functions of the liver that put things into uh, our bile on a daily basis, whether those are involved. And this helps us kind of sort between which area we have to make a focus on, and, and also certain disease entities may have a primary um, aspect of injuring liver cells versus injuring the bile duct cells, and we can then focus our attention in identifying it that way. And certainly therapies would be aimed, uh, the, the sooner you can identify a disorder, uh, the sooner you can help it. Now, you have to be careful in overinterpreting it and that there may be minor changes that can occur after a viral illness, whether somebody has a flu or even a, a bad adenoviral infection. You may have abnormal liver tests, and then often these just return back to normal. So we do have a dividing line that if somebody has an abnormal test of their liver function, 
We don't assume they have chronic liver disease right from the start, but we would then look at this again over time if there's no clear inciting agent or no clear disease en entity that is easily identifiable. And then we would look at it at the six-month mark. And if it is still abnormal at that time, it crosses the boundary from what we call acute liver injury into a chronic liver disorder. And then it requires much more investigation and determination because then we make the assumption that without an identification and intervention, it is likely that there is a possibility for progression of disease. And certainly the best advantage is always to find things in the earliest stages and arrest the complications that can occur as there is more injury and more scarring within the liver. And then um, I've seen out there on the shelves of stores that have like liver flush, you know, 14-day or 30-day liver flush if you take these supplements. But any thoughts on those? Do they work? Um, are they ridiculous? I mean, what are your thoughts? Save your money. Um, there's also a great concern that many of these products that are on the shelf uh, can actually be more harmful than helpful. And it's not, you know, and this is always the challenge. We have patients come into us and they'll show us, Doc, I have this list of ingredients uh, and they seem very benign to me. I'd like, you know, somebody told me this is going to help me. Uh, why can't I take it? And you, the usual answer is, well, this is not made to standard of our regulatory agencies. We don't know whether there are any contaminants within the compounds as well. And there have been instances of drug-induced liver injury that have resulted from taking many of these over-the-counter flushes or cures uh, that unintentionally people are actually taking things that may contain something toxic to them. Now, there are a few that are probably very benign, things like milk thistle, uh, which in very high doses have been tried experimentally for uh, amanita or mushroom poisonings, uh, but that is still under investigation. Uh, the standard amounts that one would get over the counter are pretty harmless, and assuming no contamination, that probably will not hurt anybody, but there's really no evidence to date that they will help anybody either. Okay. I didn't, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if you get supplements, who knows what's actually in them? They're not regulated probably nearly as closely as other substances. And uh, this, uh, I mean, are there any substances that, uh, at least in a clinical setting, do seem to affect the liver positively, or is it more just medications? Okay that will alleviate some conditions or manage them? Well, there has been some early evidence in pediatric patients a number of years ago where they ran testing for fatty liver where they tried using vitamin E, which is an antioxidant, uh, and there was some positive result. And again, in another clinical trial later on. But there also have been uh, results of studies showing um, cumulative data where that may not be helpful in circumstances. There also may be some, uh, there is a small amount of evidence for use of things like omega-3 fatty acids as well uh, as part of some of the fatty liver. Some One of the components as well um, that can be a problem is if people have hyperlipidemia or hypertriglyceridemia in particular and ingestion of these uh, fish oils, which is the um, what is really in that is the omega-3 fatty acid can actually lower the triglyceride levels and in some individuals may even 
uh, reduce some of the fatty change and may have a positive uh, cardiovascular effect. But again, the amounts may need to be higher. And in certain cases, there are medicinal forms of that which are purer and contain higher doses. Uh, but it, there may be some uh, benefit to those as well. And are there any, uh, when you look at people's livers and you look at uh, disease in them or problems, does it tend to occur in one part of it versus another? I, I, I don't know if the liver is identified with a head and another part. I know the pancreas is, but the parts of the liver, are they named? And, you know, again, do diseases tend to happen in one or other parts of it? Preferably there or? are. Yeah, it's a great question. We get asked that all the time. Like, Doc, you went ahead and you want to put a needle in my liver and you look at one little spot. Is that going to tell me what's going on in the whole organ? And the answer is most of the time, yes. When most of the diseases that are uh, affecting the liver and are part of systemic diseases will affect the entirety of the liver, uh, there are some regional changes sometimes, and some of that has to do with blood flow within the liver. But, you know, each of the segments of the liver has a redundant blood supply and bile outflow, uh, and they tend to behave very uniformly. And so you don't, uh, with the exception of maybe tumor development or occasionally change of the vascular, uh, the blood flow to one segment versus another, you would tend to have a very uniform effect on the organ and rarely would it be an isolated change in, in one area. Okay. And then um, I guess this is a kind of a quirky one. We're near the end. When you've looked at people's livers, you know, in a surgical setting, do they tend to always look the same or do they have very different sizes and shapes? Well, the size of a liver is proportional to a person's size. And so in infants, the liver would be smaller and adults obviously bigger. And the best way to describe it is the surface should be beautiful and glistening. And that's what we call the capsule that sits on the uh, top of the liver. And then the uh, color is usually, as you might see it, and if you went to your supermarket, you looked at a, a piece of beef liver, you'll see that nice sort of brown reddish coloration. Uh, when the liver is diseased and sick, and there are different pigments that build up inside of it, it can get a very darkish, uh, dusky kind of coloration. Also, the very smooth nature of it, seen when it's normal, will become um, almost like pocked uh, and very rough and irregular due to the scars that may pull upon certain areas. And so you will see a lumpy, bumpy surface that may develop in a sick liver when we have cirrhosis of the liver. But the liver is the great equalizer and people may be brown or other uh, colors and yet you open them up and there the liver looks the same in everybody, uh, assuming it's healthy. And then the difference is just the nature of the liver and potential disease and not anything else uh, for the way the liver looks. Okay. Then, yeah, last, last question or so. Um, what does the future of liver work look like? Are there any big breakthroughs that you see or maybe in clinical trials that you're anticipating coming? Or do you see treatment uh, changing radically in the next few years? So I'm fortunate that I've lived through a couple of different disruptors uh, that have really changed the field of liver disease. So a number of years ago, we recognized things like steroids can help the autoimmune hepatitis and 
for diseases like iron overload, you can remove iron through chelation or by uh, phlebotomy therapy. Or for rare disorder like Wilson disease, there are chelators that remove excess copper from the body. Uh, then the largest change that came about, and this was really an evolution over a number of years, was the recognition of viral hepatitis C. First, the sequence of it was identified, and then subsequently treatments evolved initially with the first drug approved by the FDA, actually cured only about 11% of people with viral hepatitis C, and that was interferon. And subsequently, over the years, there have been incredible developments such that we actually have 98% cure of patients with viral hepatitis C now, just with oral therapies. And that was a major disruption. I think the next disruption that you're going to see uh, in the field of liver disease is going to be delivered by genetic therapies. And there are a number of diseases for which we know the gene defects and now their ability to substitute uh, functional um, gene product into the liver using targeted therapies that will replace the abnormal uh, proteins or gene products uh, are going to be game changers. And this is going to be something that we're going to be able to deliver by an intravenous shot. And then you're going to see these go home directly into the liver and then they will make the transformation of the liver cells into functional cells. And there are a number of different defects um, that have been found in the body. And this is always the key of being able to understand the underlying pathophysiology of the disease and especially the gene abnormality. Now, the along with actually gene replacement, the other part that's extraordinarily exciting right now is gene repair. And if a disease has only say one or two mutations that cause the uh, misfunction of the gene product, then you can target those particular areas to correct the gene without having to replace the whole gene. And then you can create uh, a whole new uh, milieu and environment for the functioning liver such that the, you can actually effect a cure. So many of these diseases that we now think about taking a lifetime of medication for to treat will potentially be cured by a, a single or a repeated injection that's only given rarely. So this to me is our next frontier and it's going to be very exciting as we go into this decade. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work and the, the research around liver conditions today? Where can they go? So there are a number of great resources. There's an NIH website. There's the American Liver Foundation. Uh, there are a number of other very excellent individual organizations for a number of the various disease states, uh, example being the Wilson Disease Association or Alpha-1 Association, uh, Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation. So there are a number of different places people can go, um, but you know, I always advise go uh, to good sources, uh, reliable places that are vetted, and uh, be careful as you go on the internet. There's a lot of information, some excellent, and can lead places. Others may, you know, kind of lead you in a circle. Uh, it's not uncommon to, you know, search and then 
find places or organizations that will then try to steer you in the right direction, uh, whether they're considered centers of excellence or uh, just preferred providers. And I would seek, especially when you have uh, uncommon diseases, try to find these these places because then the expertise can be applied to your care. And then if done right, you can then have these experts partner with your ongoing caregivers such that you can achieve that sort of safety net, have local care, and yet have the best care available at the same time. Well, very good. Well, Michael, thank you for coming. It's been uh, it's been interesting. I mean, I don't think people think very much about their livers, unfortunately, or they might not even know in their body where they are. So it's important to learn about this stuff. So. That is true. <laughs> and yeah. I thank you for your time, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.